Okaere. My name is Michelle from Nikkei Rising, and I will be one of your hosts for this episode of the Yonsei podcast titled A Bus Ticket and $25. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt, your other host for today's episode. And in today's episode, we'll look into what happened to our families once the war ended and when they were told to go home and act like nothing had ever happened. Our first guest today is Rob Busher, JICL Philadelphia Chapter President and a faculty member of the University of Pennsylvania Asian American Studies Program. Thank you. Our second guest today is Celeste Gethert, the youth chair of the Detroit chapter of the JCL and serves as a co-curator alongside Mika Kennedy for Exiled to Motown, a community history exhibition of the Japanese American community in Detroit. Welcome, Celeste. Thank you so much for having me. So I think we wanted to start off today's episode with discussing a little bit about what happened when our families left camp. Just a little bit about what camp they were in and what they decided to do once they were told that the war was over and that they could leave the camp. So if anyone wants to go ahead and start. I can start. My grandparents were at different camps in Amachi and my grandfather was in Topaz. Um, and they both returned to Northern California, but they weren't able to get back their shops that they had previously run. Uh, not owned, never owned. So they had to look for other opportunities after that. But they did stay in Northern California and to this day live in San Francisco. My great-grandfather wasn't incarcerated. He came to Pennsylvania and then moved to Detroit. But my, through my extended family, my great-aunt was incarcerated in Topaz. And she left camp and directly came to Michigan to go to Michigan State University because it was one of the few universities accepting Japanese-American citizens following the war. And so it was kind of seen as like a route, like maybe you can't turn back to go home. So you pushed up to the Midwest to go to school. That's how she ended up in Michigan, and she started her family there, and that's where my family is now still. So my family's story is a little bit different in that they left California during the quote-unquote voluntary evacuation. So they were displaced from their farm in Gardena, California, and they fled to Utah prior to the evacuation orders. And by doing so, we're actually able to avoid being incarcerated during World War II. It was a really interesting experience for them, obviously being in Utah during the wartime, just outside of Salt Lake City in uh, Ogden and later late in Utah. They actually were less than two hours driving distance from Topaz, but you know were some of the few Japanese Americans that were not subjected to incarceration at that time. And having lost everything that they owned in California when they decided to flee, they did start over when they got to Utah. And that's ultimately where they spent their lives. My great-grandfather passed away there eventually in the 80s. My great-grandmother owned a small house there until her death in 2006. But we did have several extended family members who were sent to camp. Some were picked up early as part of FBI raids and were sent to Crystal City, one of whom I believe repatriated to Japan. The other grouping of my uh, great-grandfather's cousins ended up moving back to San Jose, where they lived originally. Yeah, I think it's 
it's crazy. We think of the Japanese American community as most of the families at the time being in camp, but there were a lot of folks who did listen to voluntary evacuation and did actually try to move eastward or or were already on the East Coast or Midwest before the war. And my family, similar to Rob's, they tried to leave California actually when the voluntary evacuation orders came up. So they moved east towards Turlock, California and stopped there for a little bit since it wasn't technically part of the military zone that was going to be evacuated. And then as they were in Turlock, the orders came down and they got stuck. And so they were actually sent to Gila River in Arizona and spent a few years there. And then my great uncle became sick with tuberculosis in the camps. And the camp doctors basically told my great grandparents that he wouldn't survive without actual medical assistance. So under armed guard, they took him to downtown Phoenix to one of the hospitals here where he got medical treatment. And because he was getting medical treatment, they let my family leave sometime in late 44, early 45. And they actually were sponsored by a Japanese American family living in North Phoenix for a few years after the war. So because of their kindness and because of my great uncle's sickness, they actually decided to remain in Arizona instead of moving back to California when the war ended. But thank you all so much for sharing your stories. It's it's interesting to hear how different the, the experiences both before the war, during the war, and after the war are for everyone. Can I ask a question? Yeah, of course. Is your family still in contact with the the Japanese American family that sponsored like your uncle or your great uncle? Yeah, we actually still see them from time to time. They used to own a, a farm up there and I think they actually owned it up until the 90s. But we're still family friends with them and we still see them every once in a while. Or well, the kids and grandkids now since most of that generation unfortunately has passed away now. Yeah. So given your family stories and their decisions, how do you think those have impacted your understanding and experience as a young Nikkei? I can go. It's interesting because even though the experience of incarceration was more so in my extended family, because my great aunt Toshi was kind of the cornerstone of my family in Michigan and then of the broader Japanese American community in Detroit, I would say. She was very active in the JCL Detroit chapter, did a lot of community work. And her and her best friend, who was also in the camps, she was in Rower, they started this whole project, an oral history project, that then became the exhibit that I'm working on now, Exile to Motown. But their experience of being incarcerated and then coming out to the Midwest, like attempt dispersal, from the government, but creating community in spite of that. Their experience of working really, really hard to collect all these oral histories and find all the Japanese Americans in Detroit and Michigan and then like speak to them, record their histories and then create like a physical archive has taught me like the power of of doing that, of keeping memories. And like, I don't know, I guess just how memory is very much alive and like acting on our present will continue acting, you know, onto the, the futures and the communities we're trying to build. So I'm just really excited that these conversations are happening at all. And like collecting and sharing each other's memories can kind of just seem like passive conversation in a way, but is also like an act of resistance. And I think that's something that I try to remember that especially my women like ancestors have taught me. Yeah. I think it's very exciting that a lot of young Nikkei now are kind of centering their lives around these stories and trying to really bring them to light, like you said, and really having and starting these discussions and trying to to continue them. Yeah, it's exciting. And it's like, I think that this system that we live under, like white supremacy, capitalism, really tries to push us to like lean into the amnesia of not seeking out our history or not, or, you know, seeking out a very normative uh, history that reinforces power structures. So having like a community history that is by nature, like casual or not super, I don't know, academic or elitist, just like talking to each other feels really, I don't know, critical. Yeah. I think, um, 
you know, when we talk about this idea of the impact of these stories on our own work uh, and just kind of our lives and as a whole, as a community, it might seem like a distant memory for some, but I think that, you know, so many of our elders who survived incarceration and even those who were displaced are still struggling with the kind of traumas that they experienced. And I think certainly in my family, we have a lot of intergenerational trauma because of that. But I think, you know, this moment that we're kind of living through right now is actually very exciting. There's a lot of Yonsei folks and there Gosei even who are really engaged in telling these stories. And I, I don't ever think that it was because, you know, people didn't think they mattered. Like the Nisei and, and our elder Sansei understand how important these narratives are, but silence comes from a place of fear and a place of shame. And unfortunately, you know, this climate of fear and shame did prevent a lot of people from speaking out sooner. But I think as a community, we've kind of come to this moment in our current history where enough is enough and people just have to speak their mind and speak their hearts. And I think that's why you're starting to see such broad-based support for things like the Sudo for Solidarity movement. So in that respect, I think it's exciting. The other thing is that, you know, obviously we are losing many of our last elders who, who did directly experience these things. So there's a sort of sense of urgency that I think a lot of us have in capturing and telling these stories before it's too late. I definitely feel inspired by some of the involvement of the community of younger generations. And especially there's so many creative ways that people are, are starting to, to bring these stories to life more often through art and through even creating apps to, to help document these stories. So I think there are just so many possibilities for that preservation and of that legacy. Yeah, it's exciting. And I really liked what Rob was saying about the fact that it's not like Nisei or Sansei didn't want to share these stories and, and the way that we are trying to talk openly now isn't like as a way of exposing any sort of shame, but it it is with a mind to heal. And so I think that like all the, yeah, the healing circles work that's happening now and saying like, we want to talk about these things in a way that is expansive and healing and not just, we don't want to re-traumatize each other or our family by any means. No, yeah, I think... I think more recently, too, with what Michelle was saying with the advent of, of technology and being able to share these stories on a much broader scale and to access them more easily, whether that be on YouTube or Densho or uh, Go For Broke National Education Center, Janum, all, all these different sorts of places that, that have recorded our history in either 10-minute video clips or in much broader strokes. I mean, with Densho trying to record all of almost all of Japanese American history, I think it's definitely given us a way to explore what has happened during the war and what happened to our families in a much broader context and allow us to share it with more people, which I think has made it somewhat easier for us to talk about as well. And I think we also wanted to discuss a little bit going on with the idea of sharing these stories and our different communities being a little bit more disparate and further out from uh, the main community hubs we think of in San Francisco and Seattle and Los Angeles. I did want to ask sort of how all of you got involved with either JCL or with the larger community, whether that be in Detroit and Philadelphia, or if you grew up somewhere else or spent time in another place that really opened your eyes to the community and to this history. I think it's great to be having these conversations now because, you know, for a lot of us who grew up on the East Coast or the Midwest, uh, elsewhere without major JA hubs, 
I think for a lot of, uh, at least my childhood, I felt like we were the only ones. And in fact, in our small town of 20,000 people, we were the only Japanese Americans and one of a handful of Asian American families. And I think the only interracial family. So, you know, we didn't have Japanese Americans in our lives on a daily basis. There were no Japanese restaurants. There were no grocery stores where we could buy ingredients to cook our food. It was only when we would visit our relatives on the West Coast or my great grandma in Utah when we would really get to experience that aspect of our culture. But, you know, after living abroad in Japan, uh, I came to Philadelphia and there was a pretty vibrant JA community here, certainly smaller than anything on the West Coast. But, you know, 3000 JAs are a lot more than I grew up around. And it was really nice to be able to engage first through the JACL and then through uh, a few other Japanese and Japanese American organizations here. It's, it's one of those things, though, where, you know, when we talk about the incarceration, I think a lot of the research, a lot of the history tends to focus on that experience before and during camp. And very little is actually attributed to what happened next. And I think it's important that we kind of recognize that as traumatic as, as that kind of move into camp was, camp became also a place of community and a, a place of solace, a, a place of togetherness for a lot of people who, in some cases, may not have experienced that if they didn't live in a, a densely populated JA area prior to the war. And then, you know, for the individuals who chose to either remain where they were incarcerated or venture further east, most of them did end up in similar circumstances as my family where they didn't have a community anymore. So the farther and farther away from that experience we get, you know, as we're into Yonsei, Gosei, and even Rokusei, you know, how does one maintain that connection to community? And I think that's that's also part of this in terms of the need to tell stories and also the the great gift of, you know, having spaces like Tadaima and the pilgrimage movement as a whole really being that kind of space for many of us to reclaim that identity and find a, a place within the JA community, even if it's not part of our daily lives. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think going back a little bit on what you said about not really learning what happened after the war, I, I definitely feel that because back in undergrad, I remember freshman year, I took a, a history class and it was it was about statistics. But the whole idea was that we could choose whatever we wanted to. And I actually wanted to explore what happened to the community after the war. So I remember using census data to sort of figure out where where folks moved to after the war and what industries the, the community really turned to after the war. And it was really interesting seeing from 1940 to 1950 how many people had actually moved from the West Coast to the Midwest and the East Coast and how different it was in, in industry because there was, of course, we're known for being a large farming community before the war. And then after the war, it was cut in half almost and all these other industries were popping up. So I think... I think we we do definitely need to look more at what happens when the war ends and when our families decide to resettle because there is a huge gap between 1945 and 1946 for some folks and then the 1970s and 1980s when we have the redress move. But I also, also do feel what you mean I, growing up in Arizona and not having that big community. I mean, we, we have a sizable-ish enough uh, community here, but going to school out in LA and, and actually getting to explore little Tokyo and, and everything more just made it great. And I think that's also why, like most of us, we gravitate towards JCL because it's that sense of community, no matter where we go, since we do have chapters all over the country and, and we make friends from all over the country. Yeah, there are so many things that you both just said that are like making my brain light up. I had a similar, I would say, somewhat similar to Rob and, and maybe you too, Matt, 
growing up in Michigan, like my first, my involvement was through the JCL picnics. Like I just always, my, my mom would always take us to the picnics. And I feel like I've talked to a few people who, who have that, like you start off as a kid, like at these picnics. And then it, all of a sudden one day they're like, you're, do you want to be on the board? You're on the board now. But no, it was more like a community place for a really long time. Or we would have like New Year's at my great aunt's house. And so I, I really just associated. I, I also assumed that everybody who I met who was Japanese American in Metro Detroit was just like my family because it felt very small. It didn't, it was, there wasn't really, a, it didn't feel like a way of seeking others out except for at these community events. And, and most of those people were my cousins. So yeah, it, it has felt like a, there's been a concerted effort like on my part and like my mom's part to, to seek out and like educate ourselves about history and culture. But I also find it really interesting and something we're trying to explore in the Detroit chapter and in this exhibit is that very question of we you know we have talked a lot about the incarceration and by no means we should stop that conversation but following Japanese Americans after the war and seeing how seeing how we created community and looking at the different industries like a lot of folks came out to Detroit to work in the automotive industry or to like get involved in restaurant businesses is really interesting then I also think I don't know if I would say it's ironic but like the pan-asian and the Asian American solidarity movements that came out of Detroit and kind of spread across the country in the 80s following the murder of Vincent Chin were like directly related to the tensions within the country, like in terms of loss of jobs within the auto industry. So there's like all these different routes that I feel like we have still have to explore. And, and those involve conversations with probably more so with Sansei than with Issei or Nisei in terms of like different levels of who we're talking to within our family. So I'm really interested in that question as well, because it carries us up to the current moment. It's less that I think that's really interesting. And I want to, to kind of go back to something that you said about you know your childhood experiences and I think also something back to what Rob was saying about all the trauma that our ancestors experienced I think it's it's put me in a place of being really grateful for all of the early experiences I've had within the Japanese American community and how grandparents still wanted to take me to the community centers and still enrolled me in different you know art classes and summer camps and still wanted me to be a part of that and, and learn about it and even though my my mother never really learned about her Japanese culture very much I think it's even though it's kind of skipped a generation, I feel like there's still a lot to be grateful for in the, that exposure. And Celeste, I think you're right. There's so much more to be explored in those conversations with the Sansei as well. Mm. Yeah, I think it kind of bringing it into the present day and, and talking about how, and we've had this conversation before with other guests, but I think looking at how our family's stories and, and these ideas of the incarceration and intergenerational trauma and the history overall of what happened to our community, how that can impact what is happening today and how we can make a difference with what's happening today. Like with what Rob said with Studio for Solidarity and these other groups. So I did kind of want to ask what your thoughts are on how our community's history and how what has happened to our community, whether we had family in the camps or not, how that story impacts what is happening today and how we can make a difference with that story. I can go. I, I'm really invested in this question and I hope it's like something we continue to talk about forever. I guess I know that like there's a lot of conversation right now about, you know, especially from prominent like black scholars and activists that we really don't, this is not like a trendy moment, just like we saw with like Ferguson, like it could be treated by mainstream media as a trendy moment in terms of dismantling anti-blackness and the carceral state and police violence. But I think that this question, like we, if we continuously ask ourselves, this is a way of making sure that we sustain the conversation and like our focus, keep our focus on these issues. And I think that one thing that we talk about, one thing I've discussed like with some of my Nikkei friends is the fact that like a lot of 
I think a lot of history wants us to look at Japanese American incarceration as like a blip, you know, to kind of encourage the model minority myth or, you know, encourage assimilation or that this was just a mistake, especially because we did get redress. But I think it's really important in terms of thinking about incarceration today for us to understand Japanese American incarceration as part of this broader fabric and very, very intentional move on the part of the U.S. government, the system we're in, um, especially in terms of like wanting to build multiracial coalitions with like other Asian Americans and the and black and brown communities to build a greater understanding of what abolition would look like. And it's also like it kind of speaks to that point that so, so many of the incarceration camps were also sites of like Native American persecution. And so there's all these different connections that I think we can explore through asking this question. And then to kind of go back to what we were talking about before in terms of doing oral history and how Yonsei are asking our parents and and trying to explore these histories. It's like alongside that conversation, how can we be dismantling anti-Blackness or how can we be dismantling this, you know, a kind of urge to be to lean into the capitalism or to lean into those kinds of conservative views. Like, I think we can be trying to do both of these things at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a lot of the narrative right now is is definitely around solidarity and, and coalition building as it rightly should be. But I, I do think that, you know, these narratives aren't going anywhere just because our community got redressed doesn't make that right that this experience happened. It doesn't erase intergenerational trauma. And it also doesn't make it any less powerful when we talk about these narratives within the context of contemporary social justice issues and advocacy, particularly particularly around things like immigrant detention. But, you know, even prison abolition, uh, I think that, you know, that's more radical. But these are are topics that I think our community might in time come to support when we look at it from that perspective. I guess one thing that I I did want to bring into this conversation, too, is that, you know, when we talk about these stories, I think it's important to remember other aspects of it, particularly in the resettlement. Japanese Americans were only allowed to come here to Philadelphia because of the allyship of the Quakers and other religious advocates. And so it was non-Japanese people who were standing up for something that they saw as a civil rights and social justice issue. And, you know, although our communities are not likely to be targeted by police brutality, and we are not being incarcerated as we once were, that that doesn't mean that we can't be the allies this time around. So I think it's important to remember that although I think our narrative is that we didn't have allies, we did have some. And uh, the the story of Philadelphia and particularly the resettlement here with the many Quaker institutions like Swarthmore College and Bryn Mawr that allowed the first Nisei college students to come here to the Friends schools, which were K through 12 that allowed, you know, elementary and high school kids out of camp. And uh, eventually, many of the Quaker owned businesses that welcomed the families of those students here into Philadelphia as early as 1943. Well, yeah, I think I also think that what Rob was saying about the fact that we got redress, even though like those reparations in no way could account for all of the loss of land and property and then culture and, you know, the intangible things that you cannot actually ever materially, the government could never materially compensate our families for, but achieving redress through this legal broken legal system in a way also would give us the responsibility to stand in solidarity with people of color and especially black Americans who have never received redress or reparations. So I think that that also is another tie. And if anything can be used as a roadmap to help advocate for that to happen using our legal case as a precedent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I think what you guys are saying is really important. And pardon me for sidetracking a little bit, but there was a, a kind of concept on my mind about our families or ancestors returning home and just figuring out what this concept of home really means. And with first off emigrating from Japan and then coming to this quote unquote foreign land, which was actually stolen and then being sent into camps and then once evacuated, trying to figure out where to return and maybe returning to the same physical space, but feeling very, very distant from it and disconnected. And I think there's a lot to be said about people experiencing that nowadays as well. And what does it really mean to feel like your home or in your, in your homeland? Or what does that even mean? Or does it have any meaning at all anymore? I would be curious to know how many JAs who resettled to a third location after the camp have actually stayed there for multiple generations. Because I, I was thinking about this maybe a couple months ago, and I realized I've been thinking a lot about this idea that in the four generations that my family has been in this country from Japan, not a single one of us currently resides in the place where we were born. My great-grandparents settled in California. They were forcibly evicted and relocated to Utah. My obachan moved all over the country and eventually settled in the San Francisco Bay Area. My mother lives in Connecticut, and I live here in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that my child will eventually live here for the duration of their life. And I just wonder, you know, once you've lost that sense of home, how do you regain it? And I don't know that, that it, there is an answer, but I would be curious to know if other families who have this kind of resettlement narrative might also be stuck in this kind of constant search or constant movement. Yeah, I don't know if this is like a dark thought, but I kind of reflecting on my own experience or family. I mean, my family after settling in Michigan has been has been in Michigan for quite a few generations, but there's still, I think, well, that's not entirely true. There is like a bit of a, a spread, an outspread. And then some of my cousins have gone to study in Japan. And we uh, now as young adults are trying to reconnect with each other, despite having in a way been geographically very close growing up so I kind of wonder if it comes back to the topic of conversation and like talking with each other like are we moving physically around seeking something out that is actually really more internal maybe that's kind of corny but it could be both you know I think that when we're looking for things are we actually just looking for a way to are we looking for a place or are we looking for other people yeah, I think in that respect, you know, every every time that I've been in a JA space, whether it's JACL or a pilgrimage or, you know, some of the more recent connections that we've been able to establish in the online JA organizing community, there is this sort of, I think, peace um, that I feel personally. And I, I think that that's definitely part of my own personal quest to kind of keep searching, keep moving. And uh, I think you're definitely onto something there. But it's it's kind of worth revisiting that in, in the respect of, you know, in general, how do people establish roots in a community? I mean, I know there are, of course, these stories of JAs who returned to the West Coast and now three or four generations later, they have family-owned businesses in one of the Japan towns. But I would imagine that's few and far between. This question is, is interesting for me to approach from the perspective of my grandfather because he actually was born and raised in San Francisco. And after camp, he returned to San Francisco and has been living there ever since. So for him, the physical movement hasn't been very apparent. It's the only time he's moved is to relocate to camp. And so I'm not sure if these questions are going through his mind about what it means to feel at home. And even though technically he's not living in Japantown where he once grew up and his family lost the store that they owned, I I feel like maybe he might have this feeling of this is where he's always been and lived. And maybe he's just recreated this sense of being home because it's 
his same physical space. Yeah, I think that is interesting to think about how our generations now that that we're a few generations removed from the war and everything, how we view home and how we view our future and where we want to be at. Because I know at least for my family, like I think so far almost every generation, with the exception of my of my mom actually, has up and up and moved some point or another. With my great grandpa being born in Hawaii and moving to the state or moving to the mainland, and then my my grandfather being born in California and ending up in Arizona. But my mom was born here and raised here and she moved around a little bit later, but she obviously has come back to Arizona. And I think this is to her is her home. Whereas for me, I, I know I was born in California and raised here in Arizona. And, and my desire, of course, is to go back to California. So I think it is interesting moving forward with all the, all the questions we've discussed today, looking at understanding what home is and what community is to all of us and what community is going to be in the future as the, the structures that were built after the war and with the JCL and with all these communities, community organizations and with little Tokyo or Japan towns, how all those structures that were built by people who came before us as they're, as those generations disappear and our generations and the next generations come up, what community will look like and what uh, what overall the Japanese American community is going to look like now that we also have obviously moving across the country to all these different places. And then with many of us being mixed race and having uh, other cultures and other experiences that's brought about how, how different things are going to look 10 years from now, 20 years from now versus what we grew up with. To me, this is also an interesting question because of the pandemic and how we've had to adapt to creating community more virtually now than ever. And so I'm curious to see how these virtual spaces that are created during this time continue on beyond the pandemic. Yeah, looking at some of the data maps from the Tadaima virtual pilgrimage, it's kind of interesting to see where our listeners and our streaming views are coming from. I saw a map recently that shows the hotspots around the country where people are tuning in from. And of course, the main ones on the West Coast that you would anticipate, like LA and Orange County, San Francisco Bay Area, Seattle, those are the biggest ones along with Oahu and some East Coast cities. But all of these smaller cities throughout the country, as well as very rural areas in places that you wouldn't expect, like North Dakota or Kansas, uh, actually have people that are tuning in and contributing and and being a part of the Tadaima space. So I think for the first time, at least that I've seen, we're really able to map and show where these people are. And um, although it's not a guarantee, obviously, that the folks are of Japanese descent that are participating, I would have to imagine the greater majority of them are. So as we kind of continue to find ways to reclaim that lost community space, particularly among those of us who dispersed after the war, um, I think that technology does serve as a, a really exciting tool that we can use to continue to build that. Yeah, and I think that's why, obviously, doing the pilgrimage and doing Tadaima, I think, has been an odd experience being in in a pandemic, but has been an an amazing experience for all of us. And we are coming up on time. uh, So I did want to ask if there's anything last minute you all wanted to touch on that we didn't get to touch on before we close out for the day. I was just going to comment really briefly on what you were just talking about in terms of accessibility to our community, even though there's limitations to being in a virtual space. Something I've found that, and maybe this like goes speaks to intergenerational conversations too. Like I feel like sometimes maybe my mom has been hesitant when I've tried to drag her along to events or something, but it's it can feel easier to connect or more accessible or even less intimidating to attend a, like a virtual event or a workshop. So that's also a, a silver lining in my mind in a way. Yeah, I think that one of the great barriers that Celeste actually touches upon there is that idea of maybe not feeling enough of something, whether that's not feeling 
you know, Japanese enough for those of us who are biracial, or, you know, if we're not directly aligned to the incarceration experience, are we enough a part of that narrative to attend a pilgrimage? And so I think as long as we can understand that we're all coming at it from very different spaces, and that there is no kind of singular Japanese American identity, that these spaces are are really made by the people who are inhabiting them. And I've certainly had nothing but positive encounters in the broader JA community uh, when people kind of come to it with that sort of earnest attitude of, of wanting to build and participate in something. So, you know, especially as we continue to diversify and we have more increasingly biracial, multiracial, multi-ethnic JA folks, I think it's harder to quantify something by, you know, ethnic heritage. And in another generation or two, you know, I think already we're pretty close to having a majority of Japanese Americans in this country who are at least multi-ethnic, if not multiracial. And it kind of begs to question, you know, how does one define Japanese Americanness? Is it blood quantum or is it culture? And is it belonging and work and time spent in a community space? And I, I certainly hope that it can be the latter of those two, because at this rate, you know, the trend's not going to reverse itself. And I think we might find ourselves in a position not dissimilar to many indigenous communities that find their, you know, fully ethnically blood quantum folks disappearing over time. It's, in my mind, more important to keep the community traditions alive uh, in whatever way speaks to people. So... Hopefully we can continue to do that through spaces like this. And I think technology may be the solution even after the pandemic. Absolutely. And I think that's something that we talk about when we're differentiating between like Nikkei and Nikkei Jean and whether it's blood quantum, excuse me, or the involvement in how you identify. So I think that's a really great point to wrap up on. And I would just love to thank both Celeste and Rob for joining us. It was great having you and we loved the discussion that came about today. Thank you so much. This is amazing. Thank you, guys. So be sure to join us for next week's episode, Nikkei Incarceration Abroad, which will dive into the experiences of Nikkei outside of the United States. This episode will be hosted by Matt and Johnny. And to learn more about the history behind today's episode and others, be sure to visit jampilgrimages.com and click on the Nikkei Rising tab. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nikkei Rising for updates on the Yonsei and other programs from Nikkei Rising as part of the Tadaima Virtual Pilgrimage Series. The Yonsei Podcast is made by Hiro Edeza, Michelle Heckert, Yoko Federenko, Johnny Narita, and Matthew Wisely, with theme music by Michelle Heckert. This has been the Yonsei Podcast, and it's been Yonsei.